stay standing up. I know that in you know, your mind that amen means sit down in Hebrew, but it means today. Stand up. I'm going to read to you from God's Word this morning, a selection from our broader passage today, Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said, among those who are near me I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. Several weeks ago, when we were in our message series through Exodus, I referenced one of my favorite books of all time by author David McCullough. It's called The Trivialization of God, The Dangerous Illusion of a Manageable Deity. I, I bought it for the title alone. And the book is fantastic. It was published in 1996, so it's not new. But the issue that it addresses is even more relevant for Jesus followers in 2023, I believe. And in preparation for today's message, I found myself reflecting on a quote from it. The quote is actually one the author takes from Annie Dillard, a person who left the church in her early days, but may have understood uh, more clearly than most faithful do what is going on around us. Here's the quote. The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It's madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. Now, my personal experience as a follower of Jesus and as the pastor of a church is that we frequently have zero idea of the magnitude of what it means to seek the presence of God when we gather uh, corporately in worship and when we gather ourselves privately in prayer. In one sense, this is really the natural outcome of the intimacy with God the Father that God the Son makes possible and God the Spirit energizes. But that intimacy was never meant to lull us into a comfort with God that obscures His awesomeness. He is our Father, but He is God, which brings us to our passage today. Leviticus 8.15 is one of the longest narrative sections that you're going to encounter after you get past the book of Exodus. It's the longest narrative section in the book of Leviticus, and it's a record of the instruction that God gives to Moses and Aaron on how the people were to approach him, and it is filled with a lot of detail that we tend to find really strange and almost impossible to access and understand when reading through the Bible on our own. Our passage today contains information concerning the consecration of priests and dietary laws and laws concerning being ceremonially clean and unclean. And obviously, it contains the account of fire 
going out from the Lord and killing Aaron's sons, an event that is so counter to our imaginings of God that some count a passage like this as the reason they walked away from the church and God altogether. And yet, if we are alert to the principles behind these occasions and circumstances which are foreign to us today, we'll see that these chapters help us stop and consider something every generation of God's people desperately needs to know, what it means to come into the presence of a holy God. And in doing so, we will see first in these chapters that we should approach God thoughtfully, approach Him thoughtfully. Uh, Leviticus 8 through 10 describe the ceremony and the sacrifices uh, surrounding the investiture of Aaron and his sons as priests. And it's helpful to think of this section as the implementation of what was commanded back in Exodus 29, where very specific instructions are given for the ordination and consecration of priests. So, on the surface, this section shows that obedience to the specific commands of God is what it means to approach God thoughtfully. And as I was thinking about it, uh, my mind began to go to Paul's instruction concerning the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In that passage, Paul really just kind of has to rebuke the church for the mindless way that they were approaching the celebration of communion. In the early church, it was part of a full meal enjoyed by the church, but it was being enjoyed too much by some. Paul says there were those among them not mindful of others at all in the amount of food that they hoard and wine they consume. And some, and in context it's always those of a lesser social status, weren't getting anything at all. Let's put it in ways that we can grasp here today. It would be like the 930 service eating all the donuts on the first Sunday of the month and, and not leaving any for anyone else except take away the idea of donuts and put in its place the idea of a meal that the church celebrated that allowed them to remember their oneness with God and one another. And you can see the real trouble, the mindlessness that was going on behind it. And so Paul commands the Corinthian church to be mindful of their obedience to the Lord's command to love others and put them first. And here's what he says, 1 Corinthians eleven thirty one. 31, but if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. In other words, what he is saying is, if we would be mindful and thoughtful of, uh, of being obedient to all that the Lord commands, we would not experience judgment for our own sin. So thoughtfully approaching the Lord involves being obedient to all that He commands, not blithely ignoring or, as we tend to do, rationalizing our disobedience in our lives. And that notion is underscored in the offerings that are described as a part of the ordination ceremonies in Leviticus 8 through 10. The priests were to serve as mediators of the sacrifices the people offered to God. But, and this is what the author of Hebrews brings out, they were also in need of those sacrifices themselves. They were sinners too. So the offerings of chapter 8 and especially chapter 9 are meant to take them into the presence of God. 
So thoughtfully approaching the Lord means not only being obedient to all that He commands, but also being aware that we haven't been obedient to all that He commands, and thus being aware of the price that is necessary to atone for our sin. We always need to come into a service of worship mindful of the fact that a Savior's blood, a God's blood, made it possible for us to come in here and rejoice in the presence of God, which leads us to the verses that I read at the beginning of our message this morning. Now, the reason for the Lord's judgment of Aaron's sons is a little bit of a puzzle. We're told that they authored unauthorized fire as they undertook their priestly duties, but we just really don't know what that means. Contextually, it could. It could mean that they had violated the Lord's command that the priest abstain from alcohol while doing their work because of what the Lord says to Moses or to Aaron in, in Leviticus 10:9. It could also mean that they just incorrectly offered up the peace offering and or the sin offering based on what transpires through the rest of Leviticus chapter 10. We can't really know exactly what it was that provoked the Lord, except to say that apparently Aaron's sons believed that they could approach God on their own terms, which in a way elevated their preferences and thoughts above God's. Because of their role in leading the people by way of example, God could not let it pass, and He would not let it pass, and they lost their lives as a result. So in these strange, and let's just face it, disquieting chapters that open this passage today, we see the importance of approaching God thoughtfully. Am I living a life? that reflects a deep desire to be fully obedient to God, even if it upsets some strongly held things I have in my life. Am I willing to do that? And then we come to the dietary laws of Leviticus 11 and see the importance of representing God distinctly. Now, those dietary laws always catch people's attention. And it's very natural and normal to read the very detailed admonitions about which animals could be consumed and which animals could not be consumed and ask why. But our our whys are generally misplaced. In other words, we spend all of our time asking why this animal and not that animal. Why are sheep okay but pigs are not? Why are bass okay? Okay, but catfish or not. And our questions lead us to believe that their primary purpose was related to the health of the people. That's what I was taught growing up, uh, that it's all about having a healthy diet. God gave these instructions to the people because he wanted them to have a healthy diet. So then how do you explain Acts chapter 10? When uh, uh, Peter, in a vision, sees a big uh, picnic blanket coming down from heaven that has all the animals on it and gives the hunter's favorite verse, rise, kill, and eat. How do we explain that? Do we just decide, well, God doesn't care about a healthy diet anymore. It's fine to have cake. No, it doesn't make any sense. God lifts these kosher food requirements in Acts 10, but the biggest problem is the statement as to why these dietary restrictions exist in verse 46 
of Leviticus chapter 11. Let me read that to you. After having given all of these kosher laws, he says, this is the law about beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground to make a distinction between the clean and the unclean and between the living creature that may not may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. If you are comfortable in doing so, I want you to underline that word distinction because that is the ball game right there. That's why the people were to observe these very specific laws concerning what they could eat and what they could not eat. It's important to note here that there isn't a sin offering prescribed for violating these requirements, which lets us know there wasn't anything inherently sinful about one animal or righteous about another animal. The sole purpose of what we would call these kosher laws was to provide, listen, a tangible, observable, visible distinction between Israel and the nations that were in the land that God was taking them. In verse 45 of Leviticus chapter 11, we see the Lord say, For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, you shall be holy, set apart, distinct, because I am holy, set apart, distinct. In other words, God is saying, because you belong to me, I want you to distinguish yourselves as belonging to me. And one of the ways in a culture of hospitality that you can distinguish yourself is by having a different diet than the world around you. It was a way of, of kind, of, kind of superficially separating you from the culture around so that then the question can be why, and you're able to answer it. As Acts 10 shows us, God doesn't intend that we represent Him distinctively in our world by what we eat anymore. A, uh, an idea for which we can be very grateful when we pulled pork at our annual meeting here in just a few weeks. But He does intend for us to distinguish ourselves from the world in one very clear, tangible, observable, and far more substantive way. Here it is. Our love for others. Jesus himself says this in John 13, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. They'll be able to tell you belong to me if you have love for one another. Unless we think that he's only saying that we're distinguished as belonging to him by our love for other Christians, for other disciples, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So it is by manifesting Christ's love to one another as Christians and the world at large that we represent him best. I want you to think of it this way. Kosher for Christians is to love others. Love is kosher. 
Now, I want us to stop and I want us to think for just a moment about whether or not that is what we are known for. When people think Bible-believing, follower of Jesus, of Christians today, do they immediately say, man, they loved one another? You know, the Roman church did, or the Roman world did. Uh, there are, are pagan historians who would say of the Christians, my, how they love one another. They were characterized by their love. Now, that doesn't mean you don't tick the world off, does it? doesn't mean that you don't have standards that are going to be offensive to the world, does it? It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that, that you are going to be someone who is just well-liked by everyone around you. It's not what it means. But if we are known for anger, if we are communicating to the world that we believe that an article of faith for us is to yell at strangers online, then we are betraying the key distinctive in Scripture for a follower of Jesus to show themselves to be a follower of Jesus in the world. That's why the dietary laws existed, to to provide an observable, distinguishing characteristic as being God's people in the midst of a pagan world. But we now need to think about our topic today, uh, that of entering into the presence of God. Uh, for, for the Jews, the correlation was this. I want you to go back to uh, verse 46 of Leviticus 11. He says, this is the law about the beast and the bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground to make a distinction between, and here's another very important phrase we need to get, between the clean, unclean and the clean and between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. Those words, clean and unclean, are the key, the key to why representing God in a distinguishable way was important. Because they tell us we pursue God intentionally. Now, Leviticus 12 through 15 is an outline of important criteria for determining whether someone was clean or unclean. So, why does that matter? Well, because of this. Basically, there were three states in which a person could find themselves at any given time at the time in which this was written. The first was holy, a holy state, which means that you had been set apart and consecrated for a special purpose for God. The other side of the continuum is unclean, which means that you were unfit for communion with God and His people. And then there is that middle state, to be clean, which meant that you were in a state fit for communion with God or His people. The goal for the Jewish person was to remain in a state of being clean so that they were always ready for communion with God and His people and to be set apart for a holy purpose. And so to stay in this state required an intentional effort so that all of life, this is the key, all of life became about doing nothing that would put someone in a place of being able to not approach God. That's why Leviticus 15.31 is a summary statement for chapters 12 through 15. It says there, thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate 
from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. The people of Israel were to follow everything that was in Leviticus 12 through 15 in order to always be ready at a moment's notice to experience communion with God and his people. Now, the criteria is admittedly odd to our ears. There are laws about women being unclean after childbirth and their monthly cycle. Similarly, men were unclean after intercourse and any time they had an abnormal discharge from their body. Then there are laws about people and, and dwellings. Being leprous was to be unclean. Having a home that had a strange mold or mildew on it rendered that home unclean. And then by extension, those in it become unclean, which isn't stated explicitly, but which is understood and implied. Now, smarter people than I have studied these chapters extensively and have noted that they portray a continuum of existence, something like this, between wholeness and chaos. Wholeness and chaos. In other words, when there is a departure from the normal status of life, the course of existence, one is rendered unclean. And we see this in the laws of leprosy and in the laws of the unclean moldy houses. Those things are outside of the norm. Uh, that also helps us understand the laws concerning women and childbirth and their cycle and the laws concerning men and discharges and intercourse. Both represent a bodily loss of bodily fluids, so a, a departure from a normal state of wholeness. But those same smart people who have uh, studied this note also the continuum between wholeness and chaos and in the sense that they occur in the normal course of life. So they highlight then how easy it is living in a world that has departed from a sinless state, uh, living in a world that is unclean, to become stained by that uncleanness. So the overall purpose of these laws, of what is clean and unclean, including clean and unclean food, was to remind people that they had to remain diligent and vigilant in maintaining their relationship with God. They couldn't just coast through life just thinking, well, I'll, I'll get with God tomorrow or Sunday. I'm going to make my, my, my habits of devotion optional for my day. I'm going to make my gathering with God's people a maybe I can get around to it kind of thing. There is, a, is, a, is an idea behind all of these things which cause us to stop reading the Bible through about February that remind us that we have to not fall asleep, that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We can't just coast. We can't just glom uh, church and glom Jesus and glom God onto uh, the life we're going to live anyway. I've heard it before, and I've said it to you before. I'm going to say it again. Most of us have the exact lives we would have if we'd never met Jesus, apart from this hour on Sunday morning. We'd talk the same way. We'd champion the same things. We would laugh at the same things. All of those things would, would be true of you and most of us if we'd never met Jesus. And that's not the life that Jesus has called us to. 
Jesus has called us to a life of such sheer abundance and joy and peace that it should be the first thing on our minds when we wake up in the morning and the last things on our mind when we go to bed at night. We've been called to an unimaginable life in Jesus. And so why are we so thoughtless and so accidental in in following Him? We have so much that is possible. And we see it in these chapters, these hard chapters, which communicate some timeless but hard principles. To enter into the presence of God requires that we are to be thoughtful, mindful of our obedience and sin and the need for forgiveness. It requires for us to be distinctive in how we represent God to the world and intentional in our living so as to always be ready to enter into His presence. And only the most self-righteous among us would say, got it, I'm good. The more self-aware among us would kind of naturally, left to their own devices, reach the conclusion that we have no hope. None of us can ever be fit for God's presence. And that's why we need Jesus. Matthew records for us the story of a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years. Now, set aside the physical terrors of such a thing. We've seen today from Leviticus the spiritual effect. The loss rendered her unable to worship God with His people in the temple for 12 long years. And then it's at her wit's end that she hears of Jesus passing through. And she says to herself, if I can only touch his garment, I will be made well. I'll be made clean. Fit for communion with God and his people. And when Jesus senses her, he tells her that her faith in him has made her well. We are all fallen creatures. All of us live in a fallen world. And as such, it is impossible to not treat God mindlessly. To be completely indistinguishable from the rest of the world is our natural bent. And thus, our natural bent is to be unfit for communion with God or His people. But if we can just touch Jesus, if we can just touch Jesus, if we can place our faith in Him, to be made well. His life in us <laughs> makes us fit for God and begins to remake us in His image. That's the most amazing thing I've learned as an adult follower of Jesus is that if I am fully and wholly surrendered to Jesus, my life becomes the vehicle through which He lives His on this earth. And he begins to knock around and bang things out of my life that don't reflect him and gives me a capacity to show him in a distinctive, compelling way 
to the world around me. That's what touching Jesus does. And you don't touch Jesus through a, a churchy ceremony where you're presented in front of a group of people and when you're baptized in a church like ours in front of a group of people, that's, that's, not, that's not the touching of Jesus. That is the performance of ritual. But if you give your life to Jesus as Savior, that will result in you being presented before people and giving testimony through baptism. If you, if you give yourself to Jesus as Savior, if you touch Him, then your life is changed forever and ever. And that's what we're here for. That's what we're all about this morning. And that's what we need to be praying for each other and for ourselves. Would we join me in prayer, please?